to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. By faith, Enoch, when he was taken up so that he should not see death, he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So the first person mentioned in this uh, chapter about faith was uh, Abel, who by faith offered a better sacrifice. And now we go to Enoch, and you can see that we're proceeding along sort of a chronological line, okay? As far as, the, as these characters are found in the Old Testament, the first story would have been about Abel, the next one about Enoch, and then the next one he's going to mention is going to be Noah. So we're going somewhat chronologically here. And Enoch was someone the Bible commended very early on. And Dan, I think that if you read it, people would be able to hear. <laughs> so let's go to you. Genesis 5, 22 to 24. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So he was not, for God took him. Amen. So uh, there was one other person in the Bible, like Enoch, who didn't die in an ordinary way. Who was that? Elijah. Some people think that the two witnesses in the book of Revelation are going to be Enoch and Elijah, but I don't know that we actually know that. But there's a theory out there that because those were the two that didn't die, those two would have uh, the role of being the two witnesses. Uh, but on the other hand, that they didn't die doesn't mean that something didn't change about uh, you know whether the whether somebody's mortal body can somehow exist in heaven for all forever and ever. It doesn't actually say that, you know. It just says that God took them. So, I don't know if that theory that uh, about the two witnesses is true or not. It's just more conjecture than anything else. Anybody else heard that one? That, that that's who it would be? Uh, Dean? In uh, King James here, it says, by faith, Enoch was translated. Yes, that word... Something someplace. Translated, right. So, something needed... You know, something would have changed about the, his existence uh, because the, the Bible says the moral has to be swallowed up with immortal at the resurrection. Okay, here's some more passages. Dean, uh, 2 Kings 2.11, and Brian, Romans 8.8 8 and 9, and Denise, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and departed them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Okay, that was the passage about Elijah being brought up to heaven in a chariot of fire, right? That was something. <laughs> yes. 
The difference is, is those gentlemen were taken up by God's power. When God left, he went up of his own power. Jesus, the yeah. kind of glory of God. He went up of his own power. They were taken up, translated. Now, uh, when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, wasn't Elijah one of the people yes. they were talking with? Well, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll have to ask Elijah about that chariot ride. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Romans 8, 8 and 9. So then those who are living the life of the flesh cannot please or satisfy God or be acceptable to Him. But you are not living the life of the flesh, you are living the life of the Spirit of God who dwells within you. But if anyone does not possess the Holy Spirit of Christ, he is none, none of His. Yeah, okay, so that passage says... I'm going to repeat all these because we got these fans going, and I'm sure you can't hear very well. Uh, that it says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the phrase here in Hebrews 11:5 says he was taken up because he was pleasing to God. All right. Now the question would be, how can a person be pleasing to God? Now the passage that Brian read says that howbeit you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you, then you do not have Christ. I'm, I'm reiterating it, but that's basically what it says. So that what well, we learn by comparing Scripture with Scripture is that without receiving the Holy Spirit and being born again, it's impossible to please God. Amen. And what that tells us is that all these wonderful religious works that people are willing to do, um, the ser- I was supposed to uh, preach a sermon yesterday at a wedding, or Friday at a wedding from First Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 13, but we had some problems and the bride didn't quite make it through the sermon. So, um, But nevertheless, I had, I had a preparation here. Of, the, of something that says, it was about love, and it says, if I have, if I give my body over to be burned and do all these wonderful deeds, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Amen. And so what Paul is saying there is that, uh, sacrificial religious good deeds, Amen. the doing of alms, the feeding the poor, all very commendable things to be done, but if they're done in the flesh, we cannot please God. And see, that's what the world's religions don't understand. The world will listen to us if we go give them money or feed the poor. That's, they don't mind if you do that. And it's a good thing to do. But if we do it without a clear gospel message, we could be implying to them that just doing good deeds is all you need to be pleasing to God. And it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not even possible. Isn't that amazing? Yes. In fact, they don't even please God. They are the stench of death. Do you ever smell death? They stink. They're the stench of death. But you and I are the sweet aroma of salvation. Are you taking? Are you thinking of a Bible verse? Yes, I am. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> I forget. You forgot. I know where it is. Yeah. It's in Second Corinthians chapter. <laughs> Well, I just thought I'd see a little Bible quiz here. <laughs> no, that's true. There is a Bible verse that says that. And uh, so the, to please God, one needs to have faith 
and believe God and come to God on His terms, and then deeds of obedience are pleasing to God. And it is pleasing to God when we care and when we give and when we reach out to the poor and when we do Christian service, but it has to start with faith in God through Jesus Christ. And what you have in world religions, and I think in contemporary versions of evangelicalism, is a deletion of the aspect of escaping God's wrath through the gospel and turning our, our whole, the whole thing into doing good deeds so that the world will appreciate us. Okay? And the good deeds in and of themselves, apart from atonement, are not salvific. And the reason this is, I think, important, because I see this stuff, I'm writing a book about this right now, but when I was a young man in a liberal church, we were taught to do good deeds every single Sunday. In fact, to summarize everything I learned from 15 years of being in Sunday school and church, when I, by the time I was 16, of course, I probably wasn't comprehending much the first five years. I have memories of the first five years. I have a memory of the first time I was in a Christmas program. But nevertheless, summarizing everything I learned in the United Methodist Church from 1955 to 1965 was this. Go out and be a good Samaritan and God will be happy with you. That's it. The whole of our Christian religion is summarized by be a good Samaritan. And I actually thought that I was making it. And uh, my dad was a good example. He was always a good Samaritan. We lived on a farm a half a mile from a highway. And while we were at, before we built our new house down by the highway, our farm, the gravel road, went to the end of the driveway. And then past our grove, it was an unimproved dirt road. And they didn't plow it in the winter. But nobody knew it. They didn't have a sign. So in the middle of the winter, somebody would be going 50 miles an hour, and they'd get to the end of the grove, and they'd hit a 10-foot snowbank that blew across there, and boom, their car would go buried right into the snowbank. It happened all winter. And they'd come and walk to the farm, and invariably, my dad would bring them in, my mom would make coffee, and he'd get his tractor, and he'd take the tractor down there and hook it up to the axle and pull the car out of the snowbank, and get it unburied, and get it turned around, and then we'd sit and chat with the people, and everybody Dad met was like some friend that he'd known for 20 years. He used to embarrass me. <laughs> and then they'd get in their car and go on their way. And uh, all of that is wonderful, but see, in my mind, that's what it meant to be a Christian. Completely. But the problem with that, if that's all there is, is that you don't need the Holy Spirit. You can, you can have a value system that says pull a person's car out of the snowbank if you have the ability to do it, which I would have been willing to do the rest of my life as a non-Christian. But when you don't hear the gospel, then these good deeds lose their significance. Amen. Amen. All right? So the reason for the hope within us is the fact that God sent Jesus to die for our sins. So the good deeds have to be expressions of faith, not expressions of my belief in the goodness of my fellow man or something. I have an example of that. Last night we had a, a, a dance for his, uh, a, 
to bring funds together at the St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Denmark Township. It was a great thing, you know, to get a community hall for all the people. So I'm talking to this gentleman, that's a good cause, very good works. But the next minute, we're talking, he says, maybe you don't want to get into this religious argument, but then he's mocking some fundamentalists and the Word of God. So here they want to do this great deed of having something for the community, and the next minute they're so liberal, man's at the center, their community hall for the people, and mocking uh, fundamentalism, and the, and the, the Bible is, can be uh, translated many different ways. And I says, you know what, I'm fed up. I say, he says, you're going to turn this into, uh, you know, black and white. And I said, it is black. He says, God, you know what the gospel is? I says, here you're going to do these good deeds, and you won't give credit to Jesus Christ what he's done. Your fundamentalist friend you're making fun of. There's another guy there that didn't want to come because his wife went there. They're all going to this church, doing these good deeds, and knocking the word of God. That Jesus Christ died, he rose, he shed his blood, he rose from you, and he died. And it's either you believe or you repent from your unbelief. It's either you have your faith in Jesus Christ, I told him, or not. This is what it's all about. But yet they're doing this. We had a wonderful time. I love the people. In fact, I was sitting over a graveyard. They had a graveyard there and a little band over there in a nice little old church. And they were marking he, the guy on the grave tombstone. It says he's not there. Well, he may not be there, but he's either in heaven or hell. And he didn't like it. He walked away. But I got a chance to witness to the other gentleman who okay. was a preacher's kid. So your, your point is the point is the gospel. There's all these wonderful things, and everybody loves it. But at the same time, they're mocking the gospel. What kind of work is that? Well, that, that's my point, Dan, is that trying to do good deeds apart from the gospel is not, not going to do it. Mike? I had a conversation with my brother. He was... He's got the good deeds type of thinking in his head. When the when the thief on the cross asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom, Jesus said, You know, this day you will be with me in paradise. He said, What this guy was condemned to death and he's on the cross, and what chance did he have to do any good deeds? <laughs> Amen. That's a very good illustration, Mike. Amen. He put his faith in God. That's a great illustration. Yeah, he has a great illustration. The thief on the cross did one marvelous good deed. He admitted he was a sinner, and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. And he trusted him. That, that's a very good illustration. And um, Enoch makes a, is a very good example here. The Bible doesn't tell us that Enoch went and did good deeds. He probably did. It doesn't mention it. What it does say is he walked with God. Amen. All right? And the, some people will do good deeds, but they won't walk with God. Yes? Well, a lot of times I know my family's all Catholic, and I think they earn their way through their works. And, you know, I try to explain to my mom, your, even your intentions and your good works are the wrong reasons. You know, because a lot of times it's for the recognition of other people seeing you do them. My aunt volunteers more than anyone I've ever known, and she complains about it, like, all the time. I work so <laughs> oh yeah, that, that reminds me of my old uh, Catholic boss when I was in Bible college. He he came in one day and he's, he was kind of a crusty guy and he swore a lot. And he, but anyhow, he came in and he says, "Oh man, yesterday was the worst day." I said, "Well, what happened?" He goes, 
Oh, I had to go to confession. He says, going to the confession and going to the dentist are the two things I hate the most. He says, in fact, I got so upset about being a confession, I went out and got drunk afterwards. <laughs> so, yeah, he literally, he literally uh, felt like he was obliged to do it because somebody told him he had to. But how is that faith? How are you expressing faith when you just do begrudgingly something that somebody tells you you have to do? And so I tried to tell him the gospel many times, but as soon as I'd get close to him and he'd start understanding the gospel, he'd chase me out of my office, office and go, tell me to go back to work. Yes? Well, this is true. You can, you can do the right thing for long holders, but it's still stupid. I mean, it's still a little A and still like false house. It's still a little on the name of God and works yeah, in First Corinthians 3, it says some people's works will be burned up, but they have a foundation that they'll be saved. Yeah. Okay, I had one more passage here. Denise, thanks for being patient. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So we speak as not pleasing men, but God who tests the hearts. Amen. So, uh, boy, that's a good verse. You know, I was, yeah, that was, that, let me repeat it. it. Hold on. Where's my Bible? Here it is. That's a good one. I'll repeat it so it gets on this tape. I'm having a hard time. I put this on the internet, but with the fans going, nobody can hear anything but me and Dan. I want this alone. He's too far. They can hear him better than me on there. Here, here's the passage. I'll read it for you. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Amen. I have to put that in the conclusion of my book. Hold on here. I've got, to, I've got to make a note to myself. Put in book. Alright. I, I, I have that so much on my mind because I'm re- doing the rewrite. I've got nine chapters rewritten now. One to go and then a conclusion to write. But I had an idea that I think I'll put into the conclusion. Uh, let me share it with you. It, this verse highlights it. We speak the gospel... We have entrusted to us the gospel. Now, the fact is that if we want to please men, we're not going to be good stewards of the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't please men. Amen. It pleases God. Amen. It offends men. Now, I was thinking about this when I was you know, doing an analysis of the, this pop book, The Purpose Driven Life, and how it uses Scripture and kind of bad translations and doesn't really apply it and it's kind of squeezy and squishy and wishy-washy. I was thinking about something. Who inspired the Bible? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired human writers to write inspired words that are God's words. Right. Now, let's just say that we're in a church pastor or elders, whoever is making the decisions, and, the, and we would ask the, the church leadership, do you want a work of the Holy Spirit happening in your congregation? 
Yes or no? They would say yes. So if you want to work of the Holy Spirit in your congregation, uh, what would you bring in to be taught? <laughs> the good news. The okay. Is there anything more powerful, more unsullied and untainted, more clear than the words that the Holy Spirit Himself inspired? Amen. And is there anything that could possibly be a more convicting and powerful work of the Holy Spirit than the Word of God preached and taught and applied accurately Amen. with valid implications so that the Holy Spirit can do what Jesus said He was coming to do, which is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Amen. Now think about this. Does the world want to be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment? No. Absolutely not. And so they don't like it. And so this passage right there is all we need to know. That This one that Denise read. Do we want to please God or men? If we want to please God, we will give the words of God without being um, equivocated, confused, buried under some human wisdom, dressed up to look good, Forget all that, because that way, if you, the more you do that, the less impact the Holy Spirit will have on people's lives. Amen. The more you preach it the way it is, the more powerful the Holy Spirit will work. So people say, well, we need to work with the Holy Spirit, so what are they going to do? Call in Benny Hinn. <laughs> but Benny Hinn isn't giving you the pure, clear words of God. No. And so that's how you judge it. How clear is the confession? Is the person a work of Jesus Christ explained without a compromise? And the more that's true, if we believe that the more that's true, the more the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's a no-brainer. Amen. We know what to do. We've got our marching orders. Amen. We don't have to call in the church growth experts. Okay. Sorry for preaching, but that's, that's, good. Amen. That was, that's, Amen. that's going to go into the conclusion of my book. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, that, well, I was thinking also about this emergent church. They they don't even have the teaching of the Bible. They have people sitting around in front of icons and incense and candles, and they're saying, well, that's how they find the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is in the Word. So how are you going to... What does that candle and that incense mean if you don't have the words of God proclaimed? Yeah, if you couldn't hear what Barb said, nobody had more signs and wonders than the Israelites in the wilderness, and they died in unbelief. So obviously that's not it. Larry. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. Somebody just asked, um, and Larry asked, if the whole, what about the people say, well, now the Holy Spirit's doing a new thing? Well, they quote the Bible. I've seen, I've seen that. Um, you know, there's a passage in the, in the prophets that says, Behold, I declare a new thing, saith the Lord. I've seen that one quoted to, to justify the idea that we can't just have church the way we used to. We've got to have some new truth or some new re- revelation or whatever. Well, in the context, the new thing God was going to do was send messianic salvation. So the new thing has already come. It's called the new covenant. Amen. All right? And so if you want to know what the new thing God's doing, I'll tell you what it is. He's saving Gentiles, and he's saving sinners, 
and he's saving people that used to be adherents to other religions, and he's saving people that aren't Jewish, that were strangers to the aliens to the covenants of promise, that we wouldn't have expected if we were Jews in the Old Testament. And the new thing is Messiah came, and these people are coming, and he's making the two into one new man. Now, the same thing with the wineskins. I saw that one the other day. Somebody's interviewing one of these leaders of one of these new uh, mystical churches. It's supposed to be a new thing. And they said, well, why are you doing this? And they said, well, the Bible says that you've got to put the new wine in a new wineskin. So this is just the new wineskin. I, I debated some prophets uh, back in 1980, I think 88, at a restaurant. They were, they were, they were the Kansas City prophets, and, and somebody arranged a debate between me and these guys. And um, with some other pastors. So we sat at, at Baker Square over in Eden Prairie, and I remember talking. And, this, and I, I, the guy pulled that one out. He said, well, this is, we're the new wineskin. And see, what you are is the old wineskin because you're saying we have to do it the old way. And you just don't get, you're not, you're not getting the new thing. You're not getting the new wineskin. I said, what are you talking about? And so I got my Bible and I said, the old wineskin was rabbinical Judaism. Amen. The new wineskin was the new covenant, the church. Amen. Well, to them, they're baffled. Why would you go back and try to understand the Bible for what it means? <laughs> yeah, the guy was just like scratching his head. Well, why are you being too restrictive? No, no, that's what I was thinking about yesterday and Friday when I was just meditating on this idea of the Holy Spirit speaking through the Bible. No, see, now just think about that. What is more powerful? Let's just take those two examples. The old wineskin, the new wineskin. This guy says, the new one is, the old wineskin is the Baptist church singing hymns and preaching from the Bible. The new wineskin is Latter-day Apostles and Prophets doing signs and wonders. That's what he's saying. I'm saying, no, the old wineskin was the whole system of rabbinic Judaism that had built up that, that Jesus confronted that was rejecting Jesus. Amen. And that his, his new covenant gospel wasn't going to fit in that wineskin. Amen. Right? But that it's going to encompass all people, and it's not going to be tied to the works of the law, but justification by faith, and this is what it's going to be. Now, what's more powerful, what the new wineskin really is, the new covenant church in Christ through the gospel, or some latter-day apostles doing signs and wonders that that verse doesn't even say? Amen. See, they think they have the Holy Spirit and that we don't because we're stuck singing the wrong songs and not having people slain under the power. And I'm saying, you don't have the power of God because you're not proclaiming the gospel. Amen. And if you really want that new wineskin to be filled with new wine, preach the gospel because that's the work of the Spirit and God will use that to bring sinners into His church and to give them robes of righteousness and make them pleasing to God. And they, like Enoch, I'm going to get back to this here, can walk with God. Amen. <laughs> and we're back Praise to our passage, all right? Praise so here we go. There are yeah. several verses in Scripture. I don't recall the address right off. I'm sure you do. But it says, An evil and an adulterous generation seek after signs of yeah. An evil and adulterous generation. That's, that's what people want. The Bible says we're saved by faith, and yet people want to see something supernatural. Right. So they chase after right. signs and wonders. They want proof. Yes. Uh, exactly. All right. So Enoch walked with God 
Because by, by faith, he trusted God. Now, let's go to this Hebrews 11.6. We'll spend the rest of our time on this verse. What a, what a very central and essential verse in the Bible, Hebrews 11.6. This, by the way, contextually, Hebrews 11.6 is commentary on Hebrews 11.5, right? Yes. And it says, and, or for, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Amen. And let me, let me comment on a couple of things. Uh, he's a rewarder of those who seek him. I've, had, I've seen pietists, and the more I study theology, the more distaste I have for anything pietistic. Now, I realize some people have pietistic traditions, but I reject all pietism because it's based on the idea that man can discover some means to be more holy than other Christians because, just because they're more um, motivated or they discovered the secret or whatever. I don't buy that. That totally flies in the face of the idea that we come to God by grace through faith and we're sinners saved by faith. And, and we're not some upper level, upper echelon Christian because we know the secret Amen. and all these other poor morons just don't get it. Um, for, forget that. That's pietism. And, and, and Rick Warren is a pietist. I, I mentioned that in my article. He is a pietist. He's going to be a world class Christian. Us ordinary people are not world class. We're just ordinary Christians. All right. Well, what do these pietists say? Well, they take this verse and they, they point out this thing. He's a reward of those who seek him. And so what he's saying, what they say is this, that the more uh, zealous, the more uh, emotional, the more hyper-motivated you are to try to seek God. Now, this is for Christians that already know him. All right, That if you go and lock yourself in the basement of a monastery and deprive yourself of sensory perception, and cry and, and do some very strong, rigorous thing, that that means you're really seeking God. And, and if you really, really seek God, really, really intensely, long enough, God may actually do some miracle or do something for you. Okay? And, and so the monasteries were filled with people trying to seek God by um, severe treatment of the body, which Paul warns about in Colossians, or trying to pray without ceasing, as Paul, Paul talked about that, but they take that literally. So they, don't even, they won't even have common discourse with other people. They won't stop for meals. They're going to pray without ceasing, and something great is going to happen. And I remember believing that. A part of the reason I hate that doctrine so much is I believed it one time, and I joined a commune. And we used to sit up all night doing that. And the one that stayed up the longest got the best revelation. Uh, so I understand that. I, I literally play that. And I'll tell you what, if you wanted a revelation to get you off track, it usually came about four in the morning. But, but now, now, what do we say to that? Let, let, me, let me respond to that. They're saying, well, the more you seek God, then the more this is going to happen. I don't believe when it says here, God is a reward of those that seek Him. Seeking Him doesn't mean a Christian being more pious than everybody around Him. It means... He's a rewarder of those who are willing to come to Him on His terms. Amen. Amen. Alright? Those that are willing to come to God on His terms. Because otherwise, we can't account for the fact 
that Paul says of the Jews, they have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. Amen. They are willing to come to God on their terms, but they're not willing, he said, the ones who rejected the gospel, to come to God on his terms. Now, are those pious rabbis that Paul loves seeking God? Well, yes, but not on his terms. Because they're saying, yes, we're zealous for God, just like Paul was. Paul said, I had a greater zeal than others. I was even willing to kill Christians. Paul said, all right? Now, think about it. Here they are, like Paul, zealous for God, seeking God, devoting his whole life to the study of Torah, willing to devote himself fully and completely to God. But when he heard the terms in Acts chapter 7, Paul heard... Stephen, give the terms by which you must come to God. What did Paul do? He, he, yeah, he held the coats of those that stoned Stephen and went off to kill Christians. But when he met Jesus, then he was truly seeking God because he came to God on his terms. All right. So don't be fooled. This those that seek God doesn't mean somebody that's more pious or hyper spiritual or willing to do extreme things thinking that somehow they're a better seeker of God than ordinary Christians. Yes? You know, I, I have a number of uh, Puritan books at home, and one of the tenets, some of the tenets Puritans had was they had uh, order church life, uh, sound doctrine, they had a personal piety. My question to you is, is when you speak of piety, are you speaking in terms of what the Puritans had or how it's changed Okay, I think Puritanism was not, for the most part, pietism. Pietism is a technical term for a certain religious belief. The pietist movement began right after the Reformation, and there was a guy named Bome that was one of the first pietists, and there was a stream of Lutheranism that was pietist. So you had Jacob Bome and a guy named Frank, Frankie, and I'm not, it's a technical term for a certain theology. Okay, now the Puritans weren't necessarily pietists, but their belief in piety sprang from a belief in God's sovereign grace that saves us and a desire to live that out. Now the Puritans had some problems theologically, but I don't—I wouldn't necessarily call them pietists. There may have been some that were. Their their main problem was postmillennialism. They thought they could establish a covenant community and bring the millennium into America which I think is very serious false doctrine, but a lot of people still believe it. So, um, but, I'm, but I mean by pietism. All pietism has an idea of some sort of an elite, special type of Christian and some practices that are discovered. They're called spiritual disciplines. I'm going to write an article about this that they discover that if you practice these things, it'll make you find that category of being a higher order of Christian. Now, I think that more of the Puritans struggled with was their assurance. As a matter of fact, their struggle was they didn't think they were a higher order of Christian. They thought they were really wretchedly sinful. And they were seeking to escape from their sense of wretchedness, like in Pilgrim's Progress. right? And so they were usually struggling with the idea of assurance. Because they, they didn't have a lot of it. Yes, the holiness movement is pietistic. And so is Pentecostalism. Anything where you have a second blessing or a higher order of Christian would come from some sort of pietistic roots. Whereas a reform view 
believes that we're sinners saved by grace and that we should never, uh, ever start thinking of ourselves as somehow superior to some other Christian because we have better practices than they do. Yes? Well, uh, the second work of grace would be actually in contrast to progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification that I believe would be everybody comes to God on the same terms through the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we come at all. And having come, we're forgiven sinners. The blood washes away our sins. Amen. Sanctification is a lifelong process that begins with conversion and ends with the resurrection from the dead. Amen. And on this lifelong process, if you can imagine a continuum, we may be a lot of different places. Amen. All right? Uh, okay, but the second blessing says it's more like this. You have a line here. Here's your saved person. And then you have an experience that puts you up in this higher category. It's the second blessing person. All right? And they're saying, like the holiest movement, sanctification was something you got at a point in time when you went to the altar subsequent to salvation. You received it. And some would even say they received perfection at the altar, you know, by, by having a second work of grace. But I would say, uh, another thing, let me say this. I do believe that there are exemplary people in the church. I do believe there are people who uh, very, very solemnly walk with God and are exemplary. But the thing that would be true about an exemplary person in the church who's thinking about this soberly is that they would never consider themselves that. Right? The best Christian that ever lived, if he or she understands the doctrines of grace, will still say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Amen. I don't care, you know, because they would be like Paul. They said they compare themselves with themselves and by themselves, or they're without wisdom in 2 Corinthians 10. He's, and they said to Paul, they said about Paul, look at him. He's, uh, Personal presence is unattractive. He's not articulate. Uh, he's not impressive. And what was, was Paul's response? I don't compare myself with people. It's foolish to do so. Yes. You, you know what's ironic about that, Mike? Because when I was, uh, some of these people were at the seminary and we were actually required to go to a day's retreat where we we're going to learn mysticism. It didn't work for me because I just hate mysticism. But you know one of the things that they do that I think is loathsome? They take that, what you just talked about, God be merciful to me, a sinner, which was just something a man spontaneously said because he felt like he needed God's grace. They take that phrase and they turn it into a, a, a way to become more pious. And they, they have people repeat it over and over and over, hundreds of times, thousands of times. God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you do it long enough, something's supposed to happen. Well, probably get into an altered state of consciousness or whatever. And so they even take something which is a good thing when spontaneously somebody says, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and they turn it into original, uh, a religious technique to make you more pious. So they say it over and over and over and over again. Yes. Well, it's the same thing with sin. A lot of people beat themselves up for days, and, you know. They keep concentrating on themselves instead of just turning and, and 
and repenting and making a decision to move toward Christ in another direction. You know, they feel like, you know, and I've done this myself, just flagellate yourself thinking you're going to, you know, if I flagellate myself long enough, uh, I'll, I'll go through some ritual yeah. purification, which, which is crap. Yeah, <laughs> well said. Well, you see, they did that. They literally did that in monasteries, the self-flagellation. And uh, like you could beat the sin out of yourself. Uh, and they've done this in exorcism. Did you see that thing about this lady that died during the exorcism thing? They're trying to beat the devil out of her? <laughs> right. Death to self is the willingness to accept the cross, to, to come to God on his terms, to realize that all our righteousness is filthy rags, Amen. that I could never do enough good works. We're talking about pietism and what's wrong with it. It's the alternative to means of grace, isn't it? Yeah, Ryan's writing a book about that. Um, come to him on his terms and be willing to bear the cross. And what the bearing the cross is doesn't mean to give your body over to be burned, like Paul says wouldn't be enough act of love to satisfy agape. Uh, bearing the cross doesn't mean joining a monastery. Bearing the cross doesn't mean sleeping on a slab of granite. Bearing the cross doesn't mean uh, taking an oath of poverty. Uh, I, I said it's easy enough to become poor. You don't have to take an oath. Right. <laughs> <laughs> <That's true. Amen. laughs> you just kind of go through life and it comes to you. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it isn't any of that. But what it means is that bearing the cross is that you're willing to publicly confess Christ and identify that you're dead to this world and your only hope is for Christ to return and for the world to come. And so the person bearing the cross was somebody already condemned that hadn't yet been executed. And so it's just a statement that we're dead to this world, that's all. It's not a higher order of piety that's demonstrated by trying to self-flagellate. Yes? Stop me. I came in late, so stop me if I'm repeating someone's point here. But the truth of Christian life is really, there's a paradox the, the closer to Christ that you get, and the more you become conformed to His image, the more you realize you yourself are a sinner. Right. Amen. Amen. And I can I can testify to that because I remember when I was a young Christian, I mean like a month old. I mean I would sit there and think, boy, I'm getting close. I'm getting close. And that. Uh, Notion was dispelled very quick into the, you know, the, the trials and temptations yeah. that are in this world. So there's, it, it really is, I, I, as, as I progress my Christian faith, I become more and more aware that I'm a sinner. Yeah. And more and more yeah. aware how, need, how needy I am. Amen. Amen. So that, that's the Christian life. And you, we, you see this evidence in the scriptures. What happened to people who came into the holy presence of God, say Isaiah or Peter? Um, what were their reactions? I'm a, sin, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Their sin is so. The, the, the more we become conformed to the image of Christ, but that doesn't mean that the, the, the Christian life. That there's an interesting thing here. It doesn't mean that the Christian life is somehow just to complete drudgery. You would think it was, but God gives us grace, and even though we realize we're yeah. sinners, yeah. He fixes our eyes on Christ, who is our righteousness, Amen. who is uh, yeah. our our hope. So we have that. Yeah, you know, we get the comfort. We have the comfort of the gospel. Amen. And the gospel's comforting. Uh, I totally agree. See, the, the irony is 
that the more you understand the person and work of Christ and the closer you would be to realizing who He is, the more you realize how holy He is and how we don't conform. So that's where you get that irony. Um, but on the other hand, it isn't just this you know, self-flagellation, I'm a miserable sinner. There's a, always a balance of the conviction of, the, of our sin and the joy of the Holy Spirit that we find because we know they're forgiven. Elizabeth? Um, that's one of the great deceptions of today, however, is that churches and televangelists and, and uh, the shooters of the world talk about making mistakes and not that we are sinners and not that we're committing sin. And so people have, have moved away from even the concept of sin. If you're a sinner, then you don't need a cross. Exactly. The, the terminology has gone away. And, and as I was saying earlier, if indeed the Holy Spirit's job in the world, according to Jesus Christ, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, how is he going to do that in churches where people don't even know there's such a thing as sin, righteousness, and judgment? Amen. All right. And how in the world if are, are people going to be convicted if they're not laid, if it isn't laid out the terms that we've sinned, we've offended a holy God, that Jesus died for sins, that his blood is shed to wash away our sins, and that we need to come to him on his terms? That's how the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But Schuler would be a good example. He comes on with his big smile, be happy attitudes. We got the be happy attitudes. Well, <coughs> it's just glib. It's not. It's not real. Yes. I think that's one of the important reasons. Well, for me personally, is the importance of the church and fellowship and encouragement for brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Because if you isolate yourself from the church or isolate yourself from the Word of God or isolate yourself from a person that can encourage you in the faith. You're going to be defeated real quick. Yeah. For everybody who didn't hear what he said, is if we get isolated, we need Christian fellowship around the gospel and the means of grace because as soon as we're isolated, we're going to get really shot down. Amen. And the sad thing is that a lot of people forcibly being isolated because their churches have been pulled out from under them. Uh, but that's the bigger battle out there. Yes? It's almost like a humanistic gospel anymore. I mean, it's not salvation. It's Yep. The Holy Spirit will work through His Word if it's clearly taught. Amen. Let's see if we can get a little more of this verse digested here. And with that, oh, another one? Linda? Oh, no, Kathy. Oh, they changed the words? Yeah, who wants to be wretched when you can be a man? But now they've got to do another one because now they're not gender, they're too gender specific. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I totally agree. The law is not preached so people don't know they're sinners, and the gospel is not preached so they don't know how to escape from sin. And what's preached instead is a nice little feel good religion that everybody gets to be a Christian if you just um, come and have fun. You know, have an entertaining worship service. And without faith, now look at this. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. There is a major statement of doctrine right there. Without faith, it's impossible. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Amen. And you can be the Dalai Lama. You can be Mother Teresa. You can uh, 
start orphanages and raise millions of dollars. There's all kinds of good deeds that you can do, but without faith, as defined here in the New Testament, coming to God on His terms, it's impossible. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Amen. And so, pleasing God is something that happens through faith, not works. And then it says, for, now here's why it's impossible, he who comes to God must believe that he is. Now, he is, in the Greek, ego, a me, is a reference to something Jesus said and something that goes further back in the Old Testament when God revealed himself to Moses. Moses said, I am that I am. Ego, a me, in the Septuagint. Continual present tense. It's, it's the continual tense in the Greek, and it means continual, eternal existing. God is. God doesn't become. God doesn't end. He is. He exists for all eternity as God. And when Jesus said this in John chapter 8, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Amen. So Jesus himself says that only believing that he is God and coming to him on his terms, believing that he is, is the only way to escape dying in your sins. Amen. And interestingly, the people that he said that to by the end of the chapter of John 8 were trying to stone him. They were so mad. You know, they got so mad at Jesus, they tried to kill him. They didn't want to hear about the fact they were sinners. Okay, so let's go back to our passage here. We're, we're fin- we'll start this again next week, but impossible to please him. We must believe that he is and that he's rewarded those who seek him. And I, I remember uh, when I was a young man in the ministry, very, very new, I was in my mid-twenties, the number of people would come to me and say, I'm mad at God. I said, okay, why are you mad at God? Because I served him and I sought him and he didn't reward me. You know, other people get what they need. Other people find a husband. Other people find a job. Other people have friends. And I've been serving God and I don't see any good coming out of it. So I'm mad at God. And every time I heard that, I always, or to this day, I always go back to this verse. I said, well, I think you got a problem here. And the problem is, you're never going to please God. Really? I said, no, you're never going to please God unless you repent. Well, why do you say that? So I read this verse. It says, you have to believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. You're telling me that you're seeking God and He's not a rewarder of those who seek Him. So you're claiming that the Bible's lying. Now, I'll, the other problem is you've got the whole idea of what reward means. You know? Pleasing God, I said Enoch walked with God and he was no more. Noah pleased God because he believed God, but Noah didn't, nobody listened to him. Amen. You know, he just was spared because he got in the ark. And so what it means is that we'll be saved, not necessarily we'll be rewarded in this world. Does that make sense? Amen. And so, and sometimes we may feel that way. I, honestly, if we do ever fall into the uh, temptation to compare ourselves with others, it's easy to look around and see somebody other Christian has a better deal. But it's all we need to be concerned about is that are our sins washed away and do we have eternal life and have we received eternal riches? Amen. In which case, God has rewarded those who seek Him. Amen. 
defined as coming to him on his terms. Right? Um, well, we'll explore more of this next week. What a, boy, are we, are we blessed to be able to study Hebrews 11 or what? Yes. Amen. All right. Good. God bless you. See you upstairs in a bit.